Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Today, Burgundy is known as a region of France, famous for its excellent wines. But if events in history had turned out differently, then it is quite possible that Burgundy would now be a separate nation. Six centuries ago, the Duchy of Burgundy enjoyed considerable wealth and power, rivalling the neighbouring kingdoms of France and England. Some of the finest musicians, artists and architects of the times were brought to the Burgundian capital, Dijon, where the artistic legacy still graces the city. As well as Burgundy, another subject of this podcast is the story of the last years of the Hundred Years' War. In England, the most well-known events in this long-running conflict were great victories on the battlefield against the French, such as Cressy, Poitiers and Agincourt. Yet, if there was a final victor, it was undeniably the French, who by 1453 had pushed the English back across the sea. So how did this happen? Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles, the Battle of Castillon, and the end of the Hundred Years' War, 1453. Few subjects in European history have created more confusion than the story of Burgundy. Throughout the Middle Ages, a series of kingdoms, duchies and counties have gone under the name of Burgundy, shifting constantly in shape, cohesion and power in an area of Central Europe, approximately between what is today France and Germany. Norman Davis, in his book Vanished Kingdoms, manages to make sense of its history, and a brief summary is as follows. The name Burgundian, he writes, originally described a Germanic tribe all the way back in the time of ancient Rome. Their exact origins are subject to much speculation, but thought to be somewhere in Scandinavia. The ancient Romans documented their presence in the late 4th century on the river Main. Then, in the first years of the 5th century, together with many other Germanic tribes, the Burgundians migrated across the Rhine and Danube into Roman territory. But they were not welcomed by the empire. I described in an earlier podcast how in 436, the Roman general Flavius Aetius wanted to destroy the Burgundian tribe. He persuaded Attila the Hun to attack them, and the result was an appalling massacre, the story of which passed into many a Norse saga and lay at the heart of the epic poem The Nibelungen. A considerable number of Burgundians, however, survived the massacre. 
Davis writes that there is a strong possibility that one group of Burgundian warriors had been conscripted by the Huns, while others were taken into Roman service. Consequently, they may have fought on both sides of the Battle of the Catalonian Fields in June 451. After this great battle, those who fought on the Roman side were rewarded with official rights to settle and form their own kingdom, situated approximately along the River Rhone, down to the Mediterranean in southern France. By the end of the 8th century, Burgundy had become part of a vast empire under King Charles the Great, Charlemagne. But in the mid-9th century, the Carolingian Empire was partitioned into three parts. One part comprising most of modern-day France, another in today's western Germany, and a third slice in the middle. Soon afterwards, this middle part, in turn, split between the low countries in the north, Burgundy in the middle, and northern Italy in the south. A little later, Burgundy was split again, producing three more new entities, the Duchy of Burgundy around the city of Dijon, the Kingdom of Upper Burgundy approximately in today's western and central Switzerland, and the Kingdom of Lower Burgundy along the River Rhone, including the towns of Lyon, Arles and Marseille. Davis's aid memoir for this process of devolution is 3 times 3 times 3. When imagining the makeup of the region during the Middle Ages, it is important to remind oneself constantly that modern states such as France, Germany and Switzerland had not yet been created, and that the communities that preceded them were no more artificial than other states of European history. From 1004, the Duchy of Burgundy was controlled by the kings of France, sometimes granted in fief, sometimes held in person by the king. The region was home to the famous Monastery of Cluny, which enjoyed great influence over the Church of the High Middle Ages. As well as their religious reforms, the local monks are widely credited with the revival of viniculture in the area. The two kingdoms of Burgundy, meanwhile, enjoyed greater independence. In the Kingdom of Lower Burgundy, also known as the Kingdom of Provence, a new culture was forged, a hybrid of Burgundian and Provençal, with its own form of speech, Franco-Provençal, otherwise known as Arpetan. Its main administrative centre was the ancient city of Arles, located where the Rhône flows into the Mediterranean. The Kingdom of Upper Burgundy, which had significantly more Germanic influence, became unified with Lower Burgundy in the early 11th century under a King Rudolf. But in 1032, when Rudolf died, the two Burgundies passed into the possession of the German emperors. They would stay there, at least in theory, until the last fragment fell to the French over six centuries later. Despite German overlordship, the main vernacular remained a Franco-Provençal idiom, which one can hear to this day in the streets of Lyon, in parts of western Switzerland, and in some of the Alpine valleys of northwestern Italy in the province of Turin. The next year saw a loss of sections of historic Burgundy. First, Provence drifted apart from Burgundy through a succession of marriages. Then, in the first quarter of the 13th century, the French conquered Languedoc in the course of the Albigensian Crusade, bringing them up to the right bank of the Rhone. In 1349, the Alpine region of the Dauphiné, centred around the city of Grenoble, was acquired by the King of France. Henceforth, the territory would serve as a dignity 
for the French king's son, an heir, now called the Dauphin. By this time, the imperial kingdom of Burgundy was looking distinctly ragged. The German emperors were too weak or distracted elsewhere to stop those parts that were adjacent to France from slipping out of their control. Those few parts of the kingdom of Burgundy which had not been lost were often disputed among neighbours. Their destiny depended on the chance of dynastic fortunes. In the mid-14th century, there was a real chance of union between the county of Burgundy, which was approximately the old Upper Kingdom, and is also known today as France Comte, and a duchy of Burgundy. Had an individual named Philippe de Rouvre, 1347 to 1361, lived longer, he would have likely fused his own claims to the duchy and those of his wife, Margaret of Malay, to the county. But Philip died in a riding accident at the age of 15 without consummating his marriage, and his titles were deemed to revert to rival claimants. For purely political reasons, however, John II of France reigned 1350 to 1364, the king captured by the English in the Battle of Poitiers, assigned the duchy to his fourth son. This son, who is known to history as Philip the Bold, in spite of his modest ranking in the French line of succession, quickly became one of the most powerful men in Europe. In June 1369, he married the now 19-year-old Margaret of Marley. Margaret was a great prize, as she was heir to a number of territories. The very wealthy county of Flanders, and also Artois, the small northern French counties of Nevers and Rethel, and on the death of her brother, additionally the county of Burgundy. Moreover, Philip the Bold managed to secure a promise from the French throne to part of Flanders, including the city of Lille, which had been captured by France in 1312. It remained to be seen whether the Burgundian dukes would remain dependent vassals of the French king or emerge as a new independent dynasty. Philip the Bold was able to take advantage of the then weakness of both the Holy Roman Empire and the French throne. The empire at this time was a loose federation without a strong central authority. It comprised a kingdom, Bohemia, plus several duchies, counties, archbishoprics, and well over 50 cities, as well as such curiosities as the Teutonic Knights in Prussia, plus a couple of semi-independent federations, such as the Hanseatic League and the Swiss Confederation. The dominions of Philip the Bold were scattered along the empire's western borders and scarcely impacted in any real sense by the then-emperor Sigismund. Meanwhile in France, King Charles VI was suffering from periodic bouts of insanity and then invasion from England. When Philip the Bold died in April 1404, the Duchy of Burgundy passed on to his eldest son, John the Fearless. John, then 33, had gained his moniker by the courage he had displayed in the Battle of Nicopolis in 1396, even though the army of crusaders he led in the battle had been annihilated and John himself captured and later had to be ransomed. Philip's widow, Margaret of Malay, became sole ruler of her original inheritance, that is, the counties of Flanders, Artois and Burgundy, while the younger son, Anthony, inherited the county of Rethel and later acquired the Duchy of Brabant. At first sight, this may appear as the breaking up once more of Burgundian lands, but this was not the case, for John and his mother and younger brother worked closely together, not only politically, but in their work to create a unified administration for their joint territories. 
By and large, things continued as in the day of Philip the Bold. Margaret remained in Arras, a historic town southeast of Calais from where she looked after the northern territories, while her son, John, occupied himself in Paris. When Margaret passed away in 1405, her various Burgundian lands were distributed among John and his two younger brothers. Again, with no question that this was ruled overall by John the Fearless. In the internal history of France, Philip the Bold's death marked a change of government. Philip, with the support of some other princes, had been in firm control of French affairs. Now his death gave Louis, Duke of Orléans, the brother of King Charles VI, the opportunity he had been waiting for to seize the reins of power. Within a couple of months of Philip the Bold's death, Louis was in firm control of affairs in Paris. He not only had a number of royal gifts and grants assigned to him, and arranged a very favourable marriage for his son, but also persuaded or bribed several minor nobles of territories in the east of France to become his vassals or allies. Many of these territories lay next to, and indeed partly encircled, the northern territories of the Burgundian state. Louis also purposefully allied with several enemies of the Burgundian house, notably with the city of Liège, which was in open revolt against a brother-in-law of John. What's more, the funds of the French crown, which had earlier been exploited by John's father, were now being diverted to Louis, threatening to undermine the financial situation of the Burgundian territories. In almost every manner possible, John the Fearless and Louis of Orléans were opposed, and John was forced to act to protect the interests of his state. Louis of Orléans chose as his badge a wooden club. John the Fearless's response was to adopt the emblem of a carpenter's plane, a tool with which to whittle down the Orleanist club. He set himself up as the champion of the people against Louis's taxes and also offered an alternative religious policy. There were at the time two rival claimants to the papal throne, Innocent VII in Italy and Benedict Thirteenth in Avignon. Louis of Orléans supported the latter in spite of his unpopularity in France, so John publicly declared for Innocent instead. In January 1406, John and Louis agreed to an uneasy power-sharing arrangement. It was agreed that, in future, France was to be governed when the king suffered his periodic fits of insanity by a joint council of nobles, which, although it included some allies of John, was predominated by supporters of Louis. On the outside, the two sides presented an image of unity, but underneath the surface, tensions persisted. Then, in the summer of 1406, a joint attack on the English was planned. Louis would attack English-controlled territory in Bordeaux, while John would attack Calais. But Louis's efforts were half-hearted, and John never even set out from his headquarters. The effect of this rivalry was an inability to confront the impending threat from England. Events came to a head on the evening of Wednesday the 23rd of November, 1407, when Louis of Orléans was assassinated on the streets of Paris, returning home after visiting the Queen. The murder was described by the clerk of the court of the Paris Parlement. Louis was, quote, struck down and killed by eight or nine armed men who had been hidden in a neighbouring house for a week or two. They cleaved his head on two with a halberd, so that he was knocked from his horse and his brains thrown on the pavement. It turned out that the assassination had been commissioned by John of Burgundy. 
Richard Vaughan, in his book, John the Fearless, describes what happened when a messenger was sent to ask John, who was in a council with other princes, what he knew of the event. Quote, At this junction, it seems that John's face must have betrayed his real feelings, and when the Duke of Anjou drew him aside to ask if he knew anything of this affair, he confessed that he was the cause of his cousin's death. But while John of Berry broke down into tears, John the Fearless kept his nerve and abruptly left the room. Brushing aside a puzzled Duke of Bourbon, whom he met as he hurriedly descended the stairs, and informed him that he was only going into lavatory, John took course at once and fled from Paris with a handful of companions. The assassination of the brother of the king shattered and demoralised the French nobility. Instead of uniting them, it further divided them. The knowledge that there was considerable public support for John's deed prolonged their inaction. Now the truth was out in the open. John made an audacious bid to justify his crime. On the 8th of March, 1408, a solemn justification of the crime was verbally presented to the French royal court by a theologian of the University of Paris in the presence of John the Fearless and afterwards circulated around Europe. Louis was charged with a number of crimes and misdeeds, including treachery. Among the accusations levelled against the murdered duke was that he, quote, resorted to black magic in an effort to kill the king by some slow disorder which would not arouse suspicion of murder, end quote. Also that he had acquired, quote, a cherry branch which had been dipped in the blood of a red cockerel and a white chicken, and which possessed such magic powers that no woman could resist the advances of his owner. He used his weapon to induce fits of sickness or insanity in King Charles VI. And the last item on the list of accusations was that Louis had imposed heavy taxes on the country, claiming that they were necessary for the war against England, but in fact he used the revenues thus realised to finance his attempts on the throne of France. The next day, John the Fearless received a formal royal pardon, in which the king, believing that his brother had attempted to usurp the throne, forgave his assassination, and forbade any moves against John on this account. But the widow and children of Louis, including his son Charles, the new Duke of Orléans, not to mention his numerous supporters, were by no means willing to accept this as the end of the affair. John became the most powerful noble in Paris, but he faced considerable and growing opposition. Among the nobles who opposed him was the Count of Armagnac, who gave his name to the anti-Burgundian confederacy. Consequently, those who fought against the Dukes of Burgundy are referred to by historians either as the Armagnacs as well as the Orleanists. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Civil war broke out as the two rival groups faced each other off on the battlefield, each side accusing the other of corruption, brutality and treachery. In the summer of 1413, after a series of brief campaigns and truces, John of Burgundy was unseated from the capital, and the Armagnac lords took control of government. The main reason for their success was the growing influence of the king's son, Louis, the Dauphin, who supported the Armagnacs. Also that summer, the French king recovered his sanity for a period and supported his son. Tensions were still high between the two sides in the summer of 1415, when Henry V of England invaded France. Henry's invasion marked a major escalation of the Hundred Years' War, which had been relatively quiet during the reigns of his two predecessors, Richard II and Henry IV. Both the Burgundians and the Armagnacs had been willing to solicit English help against their fellow countrymen for as long as the English armies were on the other side of the Channel. But Henry's move united the Burgundians and Orleanists against a common threat. Though the port of Arfleur could not be relieved quickly enough to prevent its fall to the English, the French nobility were called to arms to confront the enemy as they marched across Normandy. The king himself watched from afar from Rouen, the capital of Normandy, while assembled together were almost the entire leadership of France and their armies. They included Charles, Duke of Orléans, the Duke of Bourbon, Bar and Alençon, various counts and the kingdom's foremost military officers. John the Fearless of Burgundy is sometimes criticised for colluding with the English. It is true that he engaged in negotiations with Henry V on a possible military alliance, but John remained evasive and nothing was ever agreed. It must be taken into consideration that John, as ruler of Flanders, had a duty to support the economic interests of towns such as Ghent and Bruges, which depended on the supply of wool from England so it was imperative to try and maintain good relations with the English. His politics and diplomacy were always based on the fact that he had interests in both France and Burgundy. It should also be noted that the Armagnacs were themselves ready to work with the English if they helped their cause against the Burgundians. John did send forces to counter the English invasion, but had been requested not to come in person in order to avoid any personal conflict among the leaders. His younger brothers, Anthony and Philip, though, did participate. Another French noble who did not fight was the Duke of Brittany, whose priorities were his own duchy, and therefore shifted between alliances between England and France, as it suited him. The Duke promised to fight for the French, but was conveniently delayed and did not arrive in time. The Battle of Agincourt on the 25th of October, 1415, related in detail in a previous podcast, was a catastrophe for France. Many of their nobility were killed, including the Dukes of Alençon and Bar, as well as both younger brothers of John of Burgundy, and many more taken prisoner by the English, including the Dukes of Orléans and Bourbon. The battle was regarded by the Burgundian supporters in Paris as an Armagnac defeat. So in November 1415, John the Fearless, hoping to exploit his rival's weakness, moved tentatively with a considerable military force towards the capital, hoping for the people to rise up in his favour. 
but all such hopes were dashed in December 1415 when the moderate Louis le Dauphin fell sick and died. Immediately, the Count of Armagnac, the most hardline opponent of John, made his way to Paris and was appointed Constable of France. John the Fearless decamped and returned to Burgundy. In spite of all his best efforts, he was excluded from power throughout the next two years. In April 1417, Burgundy's interests in Paris suffered a further setback on the death of the middle son of Charles VI, John. The king's youngest and last surviving son, Charles, the future Charles VII, became the new Dauphin. Unlike his two elder brothers, Charles had no links by marriage to the Burgundian dynasty, and so was less inclined to work on any compromise deal with John the Fearless. Instead, he was betrothed to the daughter of the Duke of Anjou and the formidable Duchess Yolanda of Aragon, personal enemies of the Duke of Burgundy. In the summer and autumn of 1417, while the Armagnacs consolidated their position in Paris, a bitter civil war was fought around the capital. Town by town, John the Fearless gradually encroached on the capital, some places going to his side without a fight while others remained firmly loyal to the Armagnacs. Then, in October, the Burgundians actually marched right around Paris, approaching as near as Versailles. The two sides were as far apart as ever, despite the fact that at the very same time the English were embarking on a conquest of Normandy. Henry had moved inland from the coast, taking the great fortified town of Cannes, and with it Bayeux, then Alençon, Argentan and Falais. Back in Paris, the 15-year-old Dauphin, Charles, was demonstrating the qualities of leadership required as a new figurehead for the Armagnac cause. But in spite of his best efforts, John seized Paris during the night of the 28th-29th of May 1418. The Dauphin fled in his nightshirt and within days launched a counter-attack on the city, which came close to success. But John the Fearless was able to consolidate his position by means of a reign of terror in Paris. The Count of Armagnac, the Chancellor of France, and nearly all the Armagnacs who could be found were brutally put to death. And on the 14th of July, John himself entered the capital in triumph. In spite of the successful coup, the civil war raged on. Dauphin Charles, in defiance of the Duke of Burgundy and most of his own relatives, set up a kind of provincial government in exile in the city of Bourges, a little more than a hundred miles south of Paris. France had by now been torn apart into three areas. The Duke of Burgundy dominated the north and east, the Dauphin held sway over the centre and south, while Henry V of England, who like his royal predecessors already held Gascony in the southwest, continued his relentless advance across Normandy into the heart of the kingdom. In January 1419, after a five-month siege, the English style of the capital of Normandy, Rouen, into submission, and two weeks later, Henry's forces were only 30 miles from Paris. Henry hoped to ally with Burgundy against the Armagnacs, but John, perhaps fearful Henry was becoming too strong, agreed a temporary truce with the Dauphin. In late July 1419, after Henry seized Pointu, only 20 miles from Paris, Franco-Burgundian mines were concentrated and a personal conference was arranged, this time for September, at Montereau, southeast of the capital.
If ever there was a time to put aside their differences and work together to save the kingdom from the English, this was it. At Montereau, a many arched bridge spanned the waters where the rivers Seine and Yonne joined, and it is there where the meeting took place. The Dauphin insisted that only ten men on either side should be present at the meeting. The Duke agreed to this, and that the meeting take place in a specially built wooden palisade that would prevent any attack from outside. According to the Dauphin's version of events told afterwards, a scuffle broke out at the meeting, with the Burgundians as the principal aggressors. In the ensuing melee, John the Fearless was killed, his skull cleft in two with an axe. The verdict of contemporaries and most historians is that the killing was premeditated murder, revenged by the Dauphin for the assassination of Louis of Orleans, and an attempt to put the civil war in favour of the Armagnacs. Richard Vaughan, in his book, John the Fearless examined in detail all available contemporary evidence, and was of no doubt that it was murder, and that the Dauphin was at least aware of the plot, even if he did not instigate it himself. There must have been some who advised the murder of John the Fearless as a way out of the impasse which seemed to have gripped France, and said the act achieved the exact opposite. Any hope of cooperation between the Armagnacs and Burgundians ended at that moment. Both parties were committed to each other's destruction, even if it meant an alliance with the English enemy. As the Carthusian prior of Dijon would famously later say, the hole in the skull of John the Fearless was the hole through which England entered France. John was succeeded by his son, known to history as Philip the Good, then twenty-three years of age. Just ten days after John's death, Queen Isabella of France, working now with the Burgundians, wrote to Henry V of England, urging him to avenge the murder and offering to resume peace negotiations. Soon afterwards, Henry also received overtures from both the Armagnacs and from Philip the Good. In response, Henry V increased his price of peace. Only a few months earlier, he would have been willing to renounce his claim to the French crown in return for recognition of sovereignty over Normandy and perhaps additional territories. Now the English king saw an opportunity to win the throne for himself. This sudden escalation of English ambition was a major turning point in the Hundred Years' War. Henry kept up the military pressure by advancing his troops ever closer to Paris. Philip the Good was persuaded by his councillors to accept an alliance with England and recognise Henry as King of France. Why did Philip make this decision? Henry already had a considerable army stationed outside Paris, and had made clear his intentions of having the crown of France in any case. The alternative, anyway, was that after the death of the present king, Charles VI, it would surely pass to Philip's enemy, the Dauphin, the man who had just murdered the Duke's father. On the 21st of May, 1420, the Treaty of Troyes was formally signed on the altar of the city's cathedral. The mentally unwell King Charles VI disinherited his son, the Dauphin Charles, claiming that he was illegitimate, and recognised Henry V of England as the rightful heir to the throne. Immediately after, Henry and the King's daughter Catherine were betrothed at the same altar, and all those present, including Queen Isabella, Philip the Good of Burgundy, and Henry swore to observe the treaty. The next day, 1,500 eminent Frenchmen also took the oath. There was, however, as Juliet Barker points out in her book, 
conquest the English kingdom in the Hundred Years' War, a fatal flaw in the settlement. Charles the Dauphin had already set up a rival court and administration in Bourges, and virtually all the France below the River Loire, between Gascony and Burgundy, remained resolutely loyal to him, as did much of the Upper Seine Valley and the area east of Paris. The treaty could never have been the so-called final peace that it was presented as, but in fact a commitment to continue the war. If events had turned out differently, Henry V might well have settled for just gaining Normandy, but thanks to the French Civil War, his ambitions had become much grander. The acquisition of the French crown for himself. War would grip France for another 33 years, and for now at least, it was the English who were clearly winning. Thank you for listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. This is by my calculation now the 100th episode of the podcast, if you include the episodes on Patreon as well. It's been quite a journey that we've been through. I've certainly learned a lot through all the research that I've done on this, learned a lot about European history and enjoyed it very much. Thank you very much for accompanying me along the way. I hope you've enjoyed it as well and also learnt a lot. And I hope there'll be another hundred or so more episodes to uh, to enjoy until the end, which I still intend to be the, the First World War. I would like to use this opportunity to give a huge thank you to everybody who, in that period of, what, three and a half years now, has either written to me to give me encouragement, or to give me a review, or to even give me a donation. All your help is really appreciated and has really helped keep the podcast going through that time. I have a little bit of news. If you remember, last year I was diagnosed with a brain tumour and I was treated on successfully, and it went well, although there's still a little bit left. So I had another scan just today, literally today, and what is there the doctor thinks it's best to, to treat, to try and get rid of completely. Uh, so he's recommended that I undergo a certain bit of radiotherapy to um, to complete the job. Um, so um, it's not too bad news, but but not uh, slightly disappointing as well. There's a little bit more to go. But I'm feeling well enough in myself, certainly feeling well enough to keep on going with the podcast, and I've got lots more episodes in me. If this is the first episode that you've listened to, or maybe one of the first, then I recommend perhaps looking at the back catalogue a little bit. All the episodes of the podcast fit together in a way, in one big narrative. It's certainly not necessary to go back and listen to all of them by any means at all. But you might want to look at the list of previous episodes, see if any spark your interest in particular, or particular relevance to the current podcast. For example, I've done some episodes on the Hundred Years' War, previously on the battles of Slaus and Cressy and Poitiers, and they give a bit more background on the, on the current episodes I'm doing at the moment. So once again, thank you for listening. My name is Carl Rylott, and I hope you can join me again next week for the next episode of the Hundred Years' War and the History of Europe Key Battles podcast.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.